Thank you for listening to this audio message from Christ Fellowship Leesville. We exist to make disciples for the glory of Jesus. We pray God uses this message to help you grow in your walk with Christ. To learn more about Christ Fellowship, please visit us online at ChristFellowshipNC.org. Amen. Well, if you would, take your copy of God's Word and turn to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13, and as you're turning there, if we have any children that will be taking part in our children's class this morning, you guys can make your way to that area, and the volunteers will be there to greet you there at the back for our children's class this morning. Um, Again, if everyone else would be turning to Hebrews chapter 13, uh, we'll be looking specifically at verses 10 through 16, but I do want to... Uh, read beginning in verse 7 to get a running start and Lord willing show the connection that what we looked at last week has with verses 10 through 16. So uh, I'm going to read our passage for us beginning in verse 7 and then take a moment to pray and to ask for the Lord's help. So Hebrews chapter 13 beginning in verse 7 through verse 16. Remember your leaders Those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp And bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the grace and mercy you have already showed us today. Father, we say that every week, but every week your mercies are new to us. We wake up on Sunday morning and it's your, it's your grace and your mercy because of the finished work of Christ that stands in our place that brings us here together this morning. And Father, we're so thankful for the spirit that you have sent to dwell in us, to be at work in us through the truth of your word and and all of the ways we've been exposed to it already this day through having it read over us, through praying the truth of your word and singing the truth of your word. And now, as we hear your word proclaimed this morning, we pray that you would continue to be at work within us. Father, it's clear from this passage that you intend for your people to be strengthened by grace. And so, Father, I pray that that's exactly what you accomplish in us as we look at verses 10 through 16 together this morning. That we would be reminded of what Christ has achieved in our place, the grace that he has poured out for us through his finished work on the cross, and that you would strengthen the hearts of every person in this room this morning. Father, we know that that only happens as we set our, our minds on things above where Christ is, as we look to him, the author and finisher of our faith. And so, Father, we pray by your grace that you would fix our eyes on Jesus this morning. And so, Father, I ask for your help. I ask that you would guide my words, that you would allow me to only speak what is true of you and true of your word, and that you would protect all of us from being led astray and that we would pursue your truth and that we would go to Jesus outside the camp where he is and find strength in him. 
So Father, be with us now for the good of your people and for the glory of your name. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, before we even really begin, I do want you to see the connection that the verses from last week have to verses 10 through 16. Uh, last week, we ended on verse 9, which says that, uh, uh, calls us to not be led away by diverse and strange teachings for, because it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. And I think that phrase, that it's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, very much captures what the author of Hebrews is communicating to us in verses 10 through 16. He is showing us how we pursue that grace, how we are reminded of that grace, how that grace has been accomplished for us. He wants us indeed to be strengthened by grace. And so in verses 10 through 16, he is teaching us about what that grace looks like and what it means to live out in a life that is strengthened by the grace that is provided for us through the finished work of Jesus Christ. And this is a really important question for followers of Jesus. Where do we look for strength in the Christian life? Where do we find strength? We need this. We need to know the answer to that question because there's going to be times when all of us need encouragement. We need uplifting. Uh, we're going to feel downcast and we, we need our, our hearts to be lifted up, our hearts to be strengthened. And we know already from what we've seen as we've looked through this entire letter that these first century Hebrew believers certainly, <clears throat> excuse me, certainly needed to be strengthened, right? We've, we've reminded you that this letter was written to this group of first century believers who were Jews who had come to Christ and they were being persecuted in severe ways and they were tempted to return to their old ways of Judaism because they just thought they couldn't handle the suffering anymore. And so the author of Hebrews writes to them and says, don't throw away your confidence. You have need of endurance. Your heart needs to be strengthened. So, so we know that their hearts needed to be strengthened. And I'm even, you know, as Ben shared about this Sarah, this one believer among this unreached people group, right? How much does her heart need to be strengthened? Where does someone like that look for strength in time of need, right? This is such an important question for us to ask and to allow, Lord willing, this passage to answer for us because sometimes the darkness of this world simply can feel like it's overwhelming us and it brings anxiety and worry and even depression to our soul. So where is it that we're going to look for strength? Where is it that we should look so that the Lord can sustain us during those times? And look, the world is going to seek to answer that question for you in a number of different ways. They're going to, <clears throat> the world will say things to you like, you find strength by following your inner voice. You find strength by discovering yourself or staying true to yourself. You find strength by believing in yourself or you find strength by finding yourself or by carving out time for self-care or whatever it may be and the list could go on and on. But you hear the common denominator in all of those things. The world tells us that the place that you're going to find strength is in yourself. It tells you to look inward, that you find strength in your own actions, your own thoughts, your own desires, your own feelings. And those feelings from the world's perspective, those desires are beyond dispute. And the worst thing you could do is question your own desires and feelings. And then when that mentality is brought over to Christianity... It results in a dramatic distortion of the gospel. It looks like, just to mention some specifics, it looks like someone like Joel Osteen telling people that what they need most is to just think positively about themselves and then life will be just fine if you just think positively. It looks like prosperity gospel or health and wealth 
teachers and false preachers telling people that if they can just muster up enough strength in themselves to have faith that everything's going to be fine and wealth and it's going to be poured out upon them and they're never going to face sickness again and if they do face sickness it's because they weren't good enough. They didn't have enough faith. It's all about looking internally to seeing what you can accomplish and what you can do and it's the exact same kind of temptation that ultimately these first century Hebrew believers were facing because they were being tempted to go back to the old sacrificial system where it was all dependent on what you did, on how closely you followed the ceremonial observances, what sacrifices you offered, which is why verse 9 that we looked at last week says what it says, don't be led away by diverse and strange teachings for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace not by foods, not by external observances of ceremonies or sacrificial systems. No, it's strengthened by grace, not by looking inwardly to what we can achieve, but by looking outwardly to the grace that has been provided for us in the cross of Jesus Christ. You see, in contrast to these false teachers... And false philosophies of the world, the author of Hebrews tells us that we need to be strengthened by looking outside of ourselves. That's what it means to be strengthened by grace. You must look outward and not inward. We must look to Jesus, what someone else has done for us, what someone else has done in our place. And it is there that we will find strength. And so in verses 10 through 16, the author of Hebrews is going to give us three truths about grace that that gives strength to God's people. And we're just going to take these sections of verses 10 through 16 one at a time. Number one, first we're going to look at the grace that was achieved for his people. Grace achieved for his people. Number two, the grace that's pursued by his people. Grace pursued by his people. And then finally, number three, The grace that empowers the praise of his people. Grace empowers the praise of his people. So let's start at the beginning, verses 10 through 12, and look at the grace that was achieved for his people. Grace achieved for his people. Now in verses 10 through 12, the key verse is verse 12. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. That's the main thrust of verses 10 through 12, that Jesus has suffered outside the gate to sanctify the people with his own blood. Jesus went outside the gate. He went there to redeem us, to sanctify us by shedding his blood. He went there to achieve our salvation. It is something that he has done But the author of Hebrews is saying to us, we're not going to fully grasp verse 12 unless we understand what's happening in verses 10 and 11. So let's take some time to understand verses 10 and 11, what's being referenced there. And once we have that context, we'll have a deeper understanding of what he's talking about when he says in verse 12 that Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people with his own blood. So look there at verse 10. It says that we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. Now what is this altar? Well, we've seen throughout Hebrews that the author of Hebrews has been establishing that there is this heavenly altar which is referring to the cross of Jesus Christ. The place where Jesus laid down his life and shed his blood in our place that we might be redeemed. It is that altar, the cross of Jesus, that is being referred to in verse 10. That is the altar from which those who serve the tent, namely the Levitical priest, those who serve the tent, this tabernacle that was established in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, that those priests, even the priests who served in the, in the temple in the days of Jesus, that they have no right to eat from this altar. Now, what in the world is he talking about that they have no right to eat? What is that even referencing? Well, in the Old Testament sacrificial system, 
in almost every situation where an, a, a sacrifice was made, where an offering was made in the tabernacle or in the temple, whether it was a grain offering or a, a burnt offering or whatever it may have been when an animal, a clean animal was brought to be sacrificed, in almost every situation, that sacrifice was food for the Levitical priest. There's a ceremonial process that was gone through. It was a sacrifice. It was an offering to God. The Levitical priest uh, uh, orchestrated all that, organized all that. It was offered to God. But then after that point, there the priests were allowed to eat of what was offered. It was God's way of providing for the Levitical priests, for the tribe of Levi. They were not allowed to have other resources. And this was God's way of providing for that tribe. And they were allowed to eat from what was offered, but yet here in verse 10, it says there's an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. So it's, it's referencing back, it's reaching back to the scenario where there were times, most of the time, when the Levitical priests were allowed to eat, but there was one specific sacrifice, annual sacrifice, when they were not allowed to eat of what was offered. And that was the Day of Atonement. The instructions for the Day of Atonement are, are found in Leviticus chapter 16. And on that day, the high priest at, at the time of Leviticus 16, that was Aaron, but whoever the high priest would be, the high priest was commanded to take a bull and two goats uh, of the two goats, uh, lots were cast to randomly select one of the goats. One of the goats symbolically had uh, Aaron's hands, the, the priest's hands laid on the head of the goat. They confessed the sins of God's people over that goat. And then that goat was sent into the wilderness, off away from the city, re representing the separation of sin from God's people. But the bull and the other goat were slaughtered and sacrificed and offered on the altar of the tabernacle or the temple. And the purpose on the Day of Atonement for the sacrifice of the bull and the goat was for Aaron or whoever was the high priest to take the blood of those animals into the Holy of Holies behind the veil, the, the very veil that was torn in two when Jesus died on the cross. They were allowed... Uh, this time, on the Day of Atonement, Aaron was to go behind the veil. He was to go into the Holy of Holies with the blood of the bull and the goat. And he was to sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat, which was the, the, basically the top of the Ark of the Covenant. He was to, to atone for the sins of the people because it had to be done because the holiness of God was there dwelling in the midst of an unclean people. And so he went in to sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat, on the holy furniture. He went then to sprinkle the blood on the altar to atone even for the altar there on the day of atonement. And while the blood was sprinkled everywhere for the atoning of the sins of God's people, the bodies of the animals were taken outside the camp, outside the camp of Israel, these animals on the Day of Atonement they were sacrificed were not to be eaten by the priest. They were not allowed to be eaten. They were taken outside the camp where they were burned in total. So this is what's being referenced in verse 11 when it says, for the body of those animals is talking about the Day of Atonement. The bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places. The, the blood was brought in. It was sprinkled everywhere. The high priest atoned for the sins of the people symbolically by sprinkling the blood. And those bodies of those animals, at the end of verse 11, you see it says, were burned outside the camp. Those priests, though they had a right to eat and to partake of and to participate in the sacrifice of all other animals, were not allowed to eat of these animals because they were burned outside the gate, outside the camp. And so then the author is making a connection to verse 12 about what Jesus has done for us. He says, in the same way that those sacrifices were taken outside the camp, in the same way... Jesus suffered outside the gate. 
And because of that, because Jesus suffered outside the gate, outside the holy city, outside of the temple, because of that, those who continue to serve in the tent, those who are still there doing that thing, have no right to the sacrifice of Jesus. As long as they're still looking to their hope in the sacrificial system, they have no right to participate in what Jesus has done in their place because he has suffered outside the gate. He is outside the camp. We even see that in the Gospels, right? Jesus was crucified in a place called Golgotha, not only outside the temple, it was outside of Jerusalem. It was outside of the gates of the city. And there Jesus offered up his life as a sacrifice. And his blood was spilled, not in the holy place, not in the temple. It was spilled outside the holy place, outside the holy city. You see, the author of Hebrews is saying the blood of Jesus wasn't shed to be symbolically sprinkled on objects. Now, what does verse 12 say? He suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. He suffered outside so that his blood could be available for all who would come to him. For all who would come to Christ in faith, his blood was there and it was available for his people who would come to him in faith. And I just want us to slow down and be sure we read verse 12 really carefully because if we do, it will, uh, Lord willing, blow your mind to think about the sacrificial work of Jesus on the cross in this way. So, so let's read verse 12 again. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. That means, according to verse 12, he did this on purpose. He went outside the gate to the place of Golgotha on purpose, intentionally. Now you may be saying, how in the world could that be true? Because when I read the narrative of what happened to Jesus, it doesn't sound like he had anything to do with where he was crucified, right? It's all in the hands of the Roman authorities. They're the ones who set up the place of execution. Apparently it was a well-known place because remember, two other criminals were crucified with Jesus in that place. It was the Roman authorities who if you read the narrative, seem to have decided where Jesus would be killed. But verse 12 says, no, no, no. He was in control of where he laid down his life. You see, the Bible is telling us, verse 12 is telling us that Jesus was in control of everything that happened in his sufferings, including the very location where he was crucified. It is saying to us that Jesus was sovereign even over his suffering and that he intentionally chose to lay down his life outside the gates of the city so that he could show that his blood was for his people, for all who would come to him in faith. I mean, this is exactly what the book of Acts tells us about God's sovereignty over the cross and over the sufferings of Jesus. Just listen to these two passages in particular. Acts chapter 2 verse 23 says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. This was God's definite plan from the beginning of time. And then even beyond that, to be more specific, Acts chapter 4, verses 27 and 28 says this. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. So let's just pause right there, right? So this is the... Uh, Luke, the author of Acts, saying, look, here's Jesus. He was, uh, it seems that Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles, they were all in control of what was happening to Jesus. They were gathered together against him. 
But then listen to what the very next verse of Acts 4 says, verse 28. They were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. That the location of Jesus' crucifixion was not an accidental outcome of history. It was part of the intentional plan of God. Therefore, what we see in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ is that the location of Jesus' death was divinely orchestrated to show that his work on the cross was for the atonement of the sins of his people. That he went outside the gate to shed his blood for his people. And there was nothing in you or I that merited such unseen favor, such undeserved grace and mercy. But he went out there anyway to shed his blood outside the gate for our sins. That is how Christ achieved our salvation. And it is in that grace that we are to find strength. And in particular, this is powerful for the first century Hebrew believers who were constantly tempted to go back, right? They were tempted to go back to the temple, to go back to the sacrificial system. And he's saying to them, that's not where you're going to find grace. You're going to find it outside the camp, outside the city where Jesus is, where he laid down his life. It is there that we must look for strength to endure, not by looking inward, but by looking outward to what Christ has achieved. Therefore, the place Jesus has found is not in the old covenant. It's not in the sacrificial system. It's outside the city gates. And it's there that his people are called to pursue him. So this is the second truth about being strengthened by grace, that grace must be pursued by his people. Grace is to be pursued by his people. Look there with me at verses 13 and 14. Verse 13 says, Therefore, therefore because Jesus was sacrificed, died, on the cross, crucified outside the gate. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp. We're called to go out toward Jesus, to move toward him. Now, this is a command, but it's a strange one, isn't it? What does this mean that we are to go outside the camp? What is it we are supposed to do to obey this verse? What is it these first century Hebrew believers were supposed to do? Is he saying that there was some kind of pilgrimage they were supposed to go on to Golgotha and and go out there and kind of do some kind of strange observance? What does it mean to go outside the gate, to go outside the camp to him? What is it we are supposed to do? Well, this isn't referring to physical movement. Remember, this, as we've said already, this letter was written to these first century Hebrew believers who were tempted to go back to the sacrificial system. They were tempted to go back to a works-based religion. And he's saying to them, that's not where hope will be found. Instead, go to the cross. Go to where Jesus laid down his life. It means associate yourself with the death of Christ. That's where you will find grace. If you go back to where you were before, if you go back to a works-based religion, if you go back to thinking that you can merit your salvation and earn your way to God, then you're going to miss out on the grace that's already been achieved by Jesus on the cross outside the camp. However, what does verse 13 say about going outside the camp? When you go, you will bear the reproach that he endured. The author of Hebrews is pulling no punches here. This is strange encouragement to a people already struggling with suffering, is it not? The author of Hebrews knows that these people are struggling with persecution and trials and afflictions, that they are facing extreme hardship, and yet he says to them anyway, 
Go to Christ and bear his reproach. Go to him and bear the reproach that he endured. The author of Hebrews is saying to us that when we align ourselves with Christ, suffering is likely to follow. He is not trying to woo them back to Christ with half-truths and promises that God has never made to us, that somehow life is going to be full of health and wealth and ease when we come to Christ. No, he says when you go to Christ, suffering will follow. But he is saying at the very same time, it is worth every moment because what does verse 14 say? For here we have no lasting city. That everything you think you're going to build your life on, everything you think you might build your life on to escape the suffering, everything you think you might depend on will not last. It will all come tumbling down. We don't seek the cities that will be destroyed. Instead, verse 14 says, we seek the city that is to come. The eternal city, the place where we will dwell for all eternity in our glorified bodies, in the new heavens, in the new earth, in the presence of Jesus Christ forever. And any amount of suffering we may endure in this life is worth it if we make it to the end because we there will have a lasting city in the presence of Jesus Christ forevermore. So yes, you will face reproach. Yes, you will face hardship when you publicly align yourself with Christ, when you go outside the camp, but he is saying that it is worth it. And what he is saying, therefore, is that Christ is not found in the comforts and safe spaces of this world. He's not found in the compromise and the tolerance and the acceptance that this world presses in on us. He's not found in the comfort and safety of never speaking of his name to your family and your friends and your neighbors and your coworkers. That's, that's the city of comfort that will be destroyed and will not last. And it's where all of us naturally want to be. But he says Jesus is outside the camp and he calls us all to meet him there where we will face reproach. Look, this is a strange and ironic twist that God is saying to us that if you want your heart to be strengthened by grace, then you must go to Christ where you will face reproach. And it is there that you will find strength. Look, this is the exact opposite of what the world tells us. The world tells us if you want to find strength, if you want your heart to find comfort, if you want your heart to be strengthened, you need to pursue ease and comfort, not hardship and reproach. Sounds like that would actually weaken our hearts, right? These, these Hebrew believers are struggling. Their hearts are weak. They're, they're tempted to go back because the suffering is so intense. And the author of Hebrews says to them, then what you need to do is lean harder into Jesus, not back away from him. And when you lean harder into him, when you pursue him outside the camp, it is there that you will find strength. You see, the glorious reality is that when you are the most bold for Christ, you will inevitably experience the greatest strength from Christ. When you are the most bold for Christ, yes, your suffering may increase. Yes, the reproach the world brings upon you may increase, but it is there in the midst of that reproach and suffering that God has promised to bring us steadfastness and sanctification. That's what James chapter 1 verses 2 through 4 say to us. The trials produce steadfastness and it should have its full effect that will be perfect and complete. The trials produce strength. Listen, I promise you, if you want to grow in your faith, if you want to understand Jesus in the depths of ways you've never understood him before, start sharing the gospel with the lost who are around you. And it will drive you to the truth of God's word. I promise you that it will. 
because they're going to challenge you, because your, your heart's going to be turned to prayer. They're going to ask you hard questions. You're going to have to go looking to the truth of God's word to sustain you in those moments, and you're going to find strength you never knew you had in the grace that Jesus gives you. But it happens when we go outside the camp where Christ is, not when we seek ease and comfort. So it is the strange twist of Scripture that when you are struggling in your faith, when you feel spiritually dry, one of the most powerful things you can do is to take bold action for the glory of the name of Jesus Christ. And it is there that you will find the grace that you need to strengthen your heart. It is there that you will be able to watch him go to work in your heart and encourage you and keep you and sustain you. So we're called to go outside the camp where Christ is. And when we go, we will face reproach. But as we do so, we will find our hearts strengthened by the grace of his cross. It is there that we will come to the end of ourselves and realize that there is nothing inward to look to, but only the strength of Christ will sustain us. So then, finally... How do we respond to this grace? Well, finally, number three, grace empowers the praise of his people. Grace empowers the praise of his people. Look there with me at verses 15 and 16. Through him, namely Jesus, through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. The author is saying this ought to be the outcome of meditating on what Christ has achieved in our place as he suffered outside the gate. It should be the outcome of what happens when we go to Jesus outside the camp and align ourselves with him and live for the glory of his name. When we do that, the outcome ought to be that through him, meaning by his strength, that we continually offer up a sacrifice of praise in response to God for what he has done. That this is our act of sacrifice. That we, we no longer have to offer physical sacrifices on the altar because Christ has already done that, right? Hebrews 10, 14 has told us that. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being, those who are being sanctified. It's done. It's over. The work of Jesus Christ on the cross has achieved our sanctification. He has achieved our justification. He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified by a single offering. There is no physical sacrifice left to be laid on the altar. It's done. It's taken care of. So that's not the sacrifice that we offer, nor do we offer it to achieve our salvation. No, we offer it in response to our salvation. We offer it in response to what God has already done. And what is this sacrifice that we are to offer? Well, it is a sacrifice of praise, of thanksgiving, of acknowledging what God has done for us in our place. So how do we, how do, we do this? What does this sacrifice of praise look like? Because most often when we hear language like that, language of praise, we think of corporate worship together, right? We think of singing together. And that is certainly a sacrifice of praise. That's something we offer to God and worship to him. No question about it, but there's so much more to it than that. And verses 15 and 16 tell us exactly what the author of Hebrews is talking about when he references this sacrifice of praise to God. He gives three specific ways we do this. Number one, it's the fruit of the lips that acknowledge his name. Number two, it's not neglecting to do good. And number three, it's sharing what you have. That's what offering up a sacrifice of praise looks like. This is how we are to respond to the grace that has been provided for us through the finished work of Christ. We offer praise to God by acknowledging his name, doing good, and sharing what we have. Because, verse 16 says, such sacrifices are pleasing to God. 
It means that we orient our entire lives about, around responding to the grace that has been shown us on the cross of Jesus Christ. So what does it mean to have the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name? It means that we acknowledge that Jesus Christ is our living hope. We testify that Christ is the one who sustains us and keeps us. It's where just like we, uh, uh, the men learned in 1 Peter, when we're asked to give a defense for the hope that is in us, we're ready to give praise and honor and glory to the name of Jesus Christ because he is the source of our hope. He is the source of our life. He is the source of our joy and our happiness. And so when we're asked, we respond without hesitation that Christ is the very center of our lives. It means that when we pray, we pray in what? the name of Jesus, right? We acknowledge his work every time we pray. That's why we pray in the name of Jesus. We acknowledge that we are only able to communicate with God because of the finished work of Jesus Christ that stands in our place. It means we rest in the truth that we are co-heirs with him, that we are his body and he is our head, and that he sits right now at the Father's right hand and intercedes for us. And because of that, not a day goes by that you and I don't have reason to give praise to the name of Jesus by speaking the glories of his name. We have the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. We refuse to be ashamed to speak the name of Jesus Christ and give glory to him. That is a sacrifice of praise. But it's also not neglecting to do good and to share what we have with others. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says in Matthew 5, verses 14 through 16, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. <clears throat> in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We are to have our good works be seen that Christ may get the glory. That's the praise that we offer to him. And we do that good not to earn our salvation, but to show the world what Christ has achieved for us. Even under the old covenant, this was God's desire. We See this in Micah chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Right, so that's here Micah building this up and he's saying, what is it that God wants? Even if I were to offer a thousand rams, if I were to offer ten thousand rivers of oil, is that really what God ultimately wants? And Micah 6, 8 says, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. To do justice, to love kindness, to not neglect to do good and share what you have. And perhaps in one of the most humbly and weighty passage in all of Scripture's Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46. This is a long passage, but I want to read it and let the weight of this rest on us of what it means to not neglect to do good and to share what we have with others as a response of praise that's empowered by the grace that we've been shown. These are the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 25, beginning of verse 31. When the sons of man, sorry, when the son of man comes in glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. 
For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. Remember we talked about hospitality a few weeks ago? I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison or visit you? We, we never did any of that. And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me naked and you did not clothe me sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now Jesus is not saying that we earn eternal life by doing good things for people. But what he is saying is those who have gone to Jesus outside the camp, those who are strengthened by his grace, those who have trusted in the finished work of Christ on the cross, those whose lives have been transformed by that work of grace, their lives will inevitably result in a sacrifice of praise of doing good to others and sharing what they have. So the point of what Jesus says to us there in Matthew 25 is that if your life is not marked by this sacrifice of praise, of doing good for others and sharing what you have, then you may not belong to Jesus in the first place. Because those who belong to Jesus have gone to him and been transformed by his life-giving power and his sacrificial work on the cross. And when your life is transformed that, when your heart is strengthened by that grace, it results in what we're looking at in verses 15 and 16, that you can't help but speak his name, that you acknowledge his name through the fruit of your lips, and you can't help but let your light shine, that, there, that the Father may receive glory for your good works. You can't help but do good and share what you have with others because such sacrifices are pleasing to God, that your whole life becomes oriented around, how can I bring glory to the name of Jesus Christ? You see, it is, it is good for our hearts to be strengthened by the grace of Jesus Christ. And when that happens, when you look and see that he has achieved our salvation through laying down his life on the cross by shedding his blood outside the gate so that all could come to him in faith, Therefore, we go to him no matter what the cost because he is worth it because of the eternal city that's waiting for us where we will be with Christ forevermore. And because of that, we are empowered by the grace that he has shown us and the strength that he gives us to live boldly for the glory of his name, offering up that sacrifice of praise and acknowledging the glory of Jesus Christ and living our lives for the glory of his name by doing good to others and sharing what we have. And such lives please God our Father. And I just want to remind you this morning, even as we now turn our attention to the Lord's table, what we're doing this morning, this eating of this broken bread and eating of this or drinking of this juice, this food 
is not meant to strengthen you. It's not about the food. It's about the grace the food is pointing to. The broken bread is symbolizing the broken body of Jesus Christ. The body that was broken outside the camp. The juice is symbolizing the spilled blood of Jesus Christ that was shed outside the camp for his people. And so when we eat of this bread and drink of the juice, yes, it is meant to be a strengthening of our faith, but not because there's magic in the food, but because of what it points us to. And as it points us to the realities of the grace that has been achieved for us on the cross, yes, this moment when we observe the Lord's table, the first Sunday of every month, is meant to give you strength that you might carry on for the glory of his name. So let me pray for us now and uh, prepare our hearts, and then we will give some instructions about what we will be doing together this morning as we observe the Lord's table. Let me pray for us. Father, we are thankful for the grace and mercy that you have shown us in the finished and the complete work of Jesus Christ. We are thankful that the final sacrificial work of Christ outside the camp is sufficient for us. We don't need to return inside the city of Jerusalem. We don't need to return to the temple or into the old covenant or into the old sacrificial system. What he has done is sufficient and it is enough. And may our hearts be strengthened by that grace that has been shown to us. And Father, give us, I pray, the, the boldness to go to meet him where he is, to align our lives with the cross of Jesus Christ. Even if it means we must bear reproach, give us the strength to endure and to not throw away our confidence as we give ourselves to Jesus and live our lives for the glory of his name in response to what he has done for us. And Father, we are thankful for the good gift of the Lord's table that you have given us to remind us of the finished work of Christ where his body was broken and his blood was shed that we might be forgiven, that we might be made whole, that we might be redeemed and delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of the beloved son. And so, Father, I pray that you would use this time together this morning as we reflect on the gospel to strengthen our hearts. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.